on? Hey, welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian. What, what time is it? Don't we normally start a few minutes earlier? We were having technical difficulties. Apparently, you guys are... I don't know what it's like in St. Louis. Some sort of winter storm. I want you to know, here in Austin, Texas, it's like 58 degrees. I don't even know where my jacket is anymore. Just saying. If any of you guys are considering moving down here. St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Def Lutheran Church right here in Austin, Texas. Got a couple open spots for you. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Glad to be with you today on Cross Defense, where we take up various miscellaneous theological topics in the Lord's name to rejoice in his kindness and his goodness, and to fight back against Acadia, spiritual sloth, indifference. You know how the devil, he gets us every different way, you know, this way and that way. And one of the chief ways the devil comes and attacks us is by theological boredom. We want to fight against it just, just by knowing that the Lord's word is good. And that in the Lord's word, we hear his kindness and his mercy. We're going to do that today. Uh, and with a couple of different ways. There's a lot of different stuff we have to talk about. We got some questions uh, here. But here's a que here's a good one. This will be a good way to start. I got a bunch of questions from you guys uh, that you sent in here. Where is this one? Virgin birth, Isaiah chapter 7. Mark writes this question. He says, um, he says Dear Pastor Wolfmuller, I was wondering if you could answer a question regarding the foretelling of the virgin birth in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14, 15, and 16. I understand verse 14, which is quoted in the New Testament. What I don't understand are the following verses. How do these relate to Jesus? Was there an actual virgin birth prior to Jesus in Isaiah's account that pointed towards Jesus' birth? Thanks for your time. Mark in Nebraska and a fellow Denver Bronco fans. Who, I'm wondering, are the Denver Broncos? Now, this is a great question. And let me turn in my Bible here. I got Isaiah here. Isaiah chapter 7. This is a, one of the most famous uh, prophecies and promises of Jesus in the scriptures. It says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, well, in fact, no, never mind. We can't start in verse 14. We've got to go back. Starting in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, Ahaz, you'll remember, was a wicked king, uh, one of many wicked kings in the south, and he was their king during the time of the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah had this long ministry. He was prophet in, in, in Jerusalem for 52, 55, 56 years, long, long prophecy. But the main thing, the way to remember the dating of Isaiah is that Isaiah's preaching straddled this huge monumental event in the year 722 B.C. The year 722 B.C. is the year that the Assyrians came and wiped out first Syria to the north and Damascus, and then Israel, the divided kingdom. Now, just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page, remember the, the history of Israel comes in, in a couple of major chunks. It was under King David in 1010 B.C. that the kingdoms were united, in fact, a little bit after that, after he was king. And the north and the south and all 12 tribes were united into Israel, and they stayed together through the 40-year reign of King David, then through the 40-year reign of King Solomon. But then when Solomon died, around the year 971 B.C., the kingdoms were divided into the north and the south. You had the three tribes in the south, Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites. And then you had the uh, ten tribes in the north. You had the half-tribes and et cetera, et cetera. That adds up to 13, but that's because 
Levi didn't have land and so forth. So, so you have the ten tribes in the north, and that's Israel. And, and they existed as a country, and they were in different kind of states back and forth with the north and the south. Sometimes they were allied together. Sometimes they were fighting against each other, back and forth, back and forth, until the Assyrians come in 722, and they wipe out the north, and they come all the way down to Jerusalem, and they surround Jerusalem. Isaiah is there in Jerusalem. When the, when the armies surround him and the angel of the Lord comes and wipes out the Assyrian army, 160-something thousand in one night, and they all flee and head back home, and, and the south is preserved by the Lord. And, and so Isaiah's preaching kind of straddles that, and that becomes the major moment. But in the midst of that, probably before or sometime before that, maybe we're looking 10, 15 years before that, Ahaz is king in Jerusalem, and, and the Lord comes to him through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Ask a sign. In heaven and on earth, as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz responds to the Lord and says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that seems like a good, pious answer, right? In fact, the, one of the commandments from Deuteronomy is, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we're not supposed to purposely test the Lord. But if the Lord comes to you and asks for a sign, it's not testing him to, to answer that and, and to ask for a particular sign. If the Lord tells you he wants to give you a sign, then he wants you to ask for it. So that would not have been testing the Lord. So Ahaz has a false piety here. And that false piety is kind of the mark of Ahaz the king. I mean, he just has that constantly. And so the Lord is going to give him an answer. And, it, and this answer is going to be this beautiful promise of the virgin birth. Let me read it, and then there's a handful of things to point out. This is verse 13. And he said, the Lord said, Hear then, O house of David. Don't miss that, house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the Hebrew way of saying, God with us. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That's the name that Jesus has, God with us. Now, now, this verse has been subject of a lot of controversy, unnecessarily as far as I can tell, because people will say, well, if it's a direct, what's called a rectilinear messianic prophecy, that means a promise that points straight to Jesus, then what does it have to do with the people back then? If this is a promise that was pointing 718 years into the future, then why, why would God preach it to Ahaz? What would it mean? Well, first of all, any time Jesus is preached, it benefits the people. So even if this had nothing to do with Ahaz, nothing to do with his family, nothing to do with the kingdom then, if it was only saying at some point in the very far future, God will cause a, a, a man to be born without the help of another man, born of a virgin, who will be God in the flesh, who will rescue and deliver us, that would be enough. And the people of the Old Testament, remember, were saved by trusting in these kinds of promises. They were saved by trusting in the promise of the forgiveness of sins that the Lord was going to accomplish through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, through his substitutionary death in our place. So, so that would be enough. But it does have something to do with Ahaz. I, I'm not sure how, there's, there's so many what we'd call liberal or progressive Bible scholars who would, who would insist that there was another child of Ahaz or something like this, that this would 
actually qualify as because they they insist that it has to do with the with the kingdom with the kingship and throne of Ahaz but I but they miss the the perhaps the most obvious part now let me let me back up and give you a little background to to, to set the stage here we want to remember that the very first preaching of the gospel uh, in the Bible was already in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15 is the verse that we want to key in on here. And that verse has a name. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. That, that is a stunning uh, name for something. The Proto-Evangelion, it means the first gospel, which is a beautiful uh, name for this. And it's when the Lord comes to Adam and Eve and in the garden and finds them standing there with the devil and says to the devil, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed of the woman, will crush your head and your crush his heel. That's the promise of the of the man born of a woman without the help of God who will be able to destroy God, to destroy the devil, who, indicating that he will be God himself. It's just absolutely wonderful. Stunning promise. And that promise is continued all through the Old Testament. So you get the seed promised to Abraham. Your, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That promise is extended to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah until the Messiah, the king, has come. And then that promise goes silent for about 400 or about 300 years until the time of King David. And during the time of King David, this is amazing, David goes to make a temple for the Lord. The Lord was still in the tabernacle, the 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 thing that um the tent the the tent for worship that God had instructed Moses to build. And and David had built himself a nice palace out of stone and cedar wood. And the Lord was still in this tabernacle. And so David decides, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the Lord out of the tabernacle and put him in a temple. I'm gonna build him a house of stone here in Jerusalem. And he goes to Nathan, the prophet, and he says, hey, should I do this? And Nathan says, sure, whatever you want to do, go ahead. And until that night when the Lord visits Nathan and says, wait a minute, go preach to David. Did I ask for a house? Did I ask you to build me a house? No, I did not. And in fact, here's the deal. I'm going to build you a house and your seed will sit on the throne forever. So that that seed promise now is given to David. So that the Messiah will be the son of Abraham, the son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, and the son of David. And that's where, by the way, the promise stops. We don't have any further clarification after that, so that the nearest relative that we know for certain by the promise of the Old Testament is King David. It's one of the important reasons why Matthew and Luke established both Mary and Joseph to be of the house and lineage of David. Remember when Jesus was talking in the temple? This is on the Tuesday before he's crucified, and he says to the Pharisees there, whose son will the Messiah be? And they all said, David. Well, that's because of this promise. Second Samuel chapter 7 where the Lord promised to build David a house. In fact, five, six, seven of the Psalms, David reflects on this wonderful, marvelous promise. In fact, as soon as Nathan makes the promise, David goes into the temple and falls on his face and says, Lord, how could it be that you would give me this, this incredible blessing? This is why, by the way, when Isaiah preaches about the Messiah, he says the root from the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's grandfather. And so, or David's father, excuse me, so that the Messiah will be from this family and lineage of David. Now, 
let's just pretend like you're Ahaz. You're the great-great-grandson or whatever of King David, and you are king. You are thinking to yourself, every time you have a child, that that child could be the one, that that boy could be the Messiah, that that prince could be the Prince of Peace. And so the Lord comes along and says to Ahaz, Hey, buddy, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child. In other words, this prophecy has everything to do with Ahaz. The Lord is saying to Ahaz, You are not going to be the father of the Messiah. <laughs> Don't all these sons of yours that you're looking to, wondering if they're going to be the ones that will sit on the throne forever? They're not. So that, in a, in a way, the Lord is cutting him out of this immediate expectation of the promise of the Messiah. So that this promise has everything to do with Ahaz and everything to do with God's anger at Ahaz. This is why the Lord says, how long will you weary men, but will you also weary God? So here's a sign. The virgin will conceive, and you're not going to have anything, anything to do with it. All right. Now, let's go on. The text continues. You see it? If you guys are with me. The text goes on in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15. And it says, He, that is Emmanuel, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. That would be probably the northern kingdoms, Syria and, um, and the north, Israel. And he's saying, before this guy shows up, before the Messiah is able to take his office, kingdoms are going to be destroyed. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria is coming, and he's going to do some walloping. He's going to do some destruction. He's going to do some, some wrecking house. <laughs> and even though you won't be destroyed, you'll be afflicted by him. So look out. Now, what is this curds and honey thing? I don't know exactly, except for it comes up later in the text. It's in verse 21, it says, In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep because of the abundance of milk that they give. He'll eat curds. For everyone who's left in the land will eat curds and honey. Curds and honey is different than, say, meat and bread. Curds is, you know, cheese. You're eating milk, so you're living off the livestock. And it indicates a sort of nomadic life. It's, you know, when the land is desolated, you don't have anything to eat. But then the first thing that you have to eat after that is the stuff that you can make from the livestock and the stuff that you can make, that you can gather in the woods, like honey. And so curds and honey come with and so... The Lord, it's either an indication that things are going to be getting worse or probably in this text an indication that things are going to be getting better. And in this way, what Ahaz is, Ahaz is threatened while the rest of the people are comforted. Because even though Ahaz has forgotten God and the Lord is going to punish him, the Lord hasn't forgotten the rest of his people. And like all the preaching of Isaiah, it has this beautiful preaching that there'll be a remnant and that the Lord will look upon this remnant and give mercy to this remnant in his peace and in his love. That remnant will be served by Jesus. And that remnant is his church and his kingdom. So, Mark, I hope that helps. That's a good question. 
about the virgin birth in Isaiah chapter 7, and thanks for sending it in. The rest of you, if you have questions like this, the best way to send it is to, is to go to wolfmuller.co, and I think on that website, wolfmuller, W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R, dot C-O, uh, like com without the M, like Colorado, you'll find a contact button, I think, on there, and you can send me your questions. Those come straight to me. Uh, we'll take up another question about, this is another good one, about confession and absolution, but we probably better go to the break. I know we're all out of whack, but I think Andy Bates is over there working the buttons and probably need to go to break now. Andy, if that sounds good to you, and we'll come back and we'll talk about confession and absolution. You're listening to Cross Defense. We'll be right back. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Here is what our listeners are saying about KFUO Radio. Hello there, uh, from Scottville, Michigan. We appreciate having KFUO streaming into our home. The programs on KFUO have really built up our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you to all the staff for continuing to bring the good news to all the world. We will continue to keep you in our prayers. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. Worldwide KFUO. All right, welcome back to Cross Defense. Thanks for joining me here. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller broadcasting from the Tower Studio, St. Paul Lutheran Church, Austin, Texas. Man, that is the coolest thing to say, the Tower Studio. I got a question here from Josh who asks, Can you, could you talk about confession and absolution and dealing with how we receive forgiveness? Maybe this might be a good topic for Cross Defense or Sunday Drive Home or Tuesday Drive Home or who knows. Sunday Drive Home, by the way, if you guys don't know if you're listening on the radio and you also have a thing called the computer every Sunday on YouTube, although it normally comes out on Monday, kind of have a, a meandering, wandering drive home video where I sort of reflect on various different things. It's, it's basically like this. You know what makes a good YouTube video is a guy who's looking at the camera, who's paying attention, who's short. It's concise and to the point. Well, we do the exact opposite of that. I almost fall asleep while I'm driving home. And Anyway, if you should, it talks about confession in two ways. It talks about confessing our faith, and it talks about confessing our sins. Now, the word confess is the word in Greek, homo logeo. We don't want to make too much out of it, but it's a nice, it's a nice compound word. Homo meaning same, and logeo meaning to speak or word or reason, things like that. Logos, that's the, that's the word there. And so to homologate, it means, to, it means to speak the same. It means to have the same voice. And when we confess, then what we're doing is we're saying to God or about God the, the things that he says about himself. So when we confess the faith, it's like this. God says, hey, I'm the creator. And we say, oh, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Or Jesus says, hey, I'm God and man. And we say, ah, I believe in Jesus Christ, true God begotten of the Father before all worlds, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, that he's my Lord. So that when we confess the faith, we're saying to God the same thing about him that he says about himself. Now, 
when we confess our sins, what we're doing is saying the same thing about ourselves that God says about us. So the Lord looks at us and he says, oof, you're a sinner. No one is good, no, not one. And we confess. We say the same thing. I'm not good. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I've sinned against the Lord in thought, word, and deed. By what I've done, by what I've left undone. I've deserved his temporal and eternal wrath and punishment. This is what it means to confess our sins. And, and that confession comes in three forms. So that we confess our faith and we confess our sins. And when it comes to confessing our sins, there's three ways that we confess our sins. Now, now two of these are commanded and one of them is optional. The first is that we confess all of our sins to God all the time. Even we confess, according to Psalm 19, forgive me my hidden faults, we confess even the sins that we don't even know about. We confess that we're sinners. When we, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses. It's not even just the things that we know we've done wrong. It's not even the sins we know we committed. We're just asking for, for all of them. I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I know I've blown it. I've done wrong. I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I've broken God's commandments. I deserve his wrath. I Please have mercy on me. That's the general confession that every Christian makes to God. And then there's the second kind of confession, which is when we specifically sin against someone and we go to them and confess our sins and beg for mercy. So that James says, confess your sins to one another. When I sin against you, I want to go to you. I'm commanded by the scriptures to go to you and to apologize, to confess my sins. So that we are confessing our sins to the person that we sinned against and we're asking for their forgiveness and, and hopefully they give it. And if not, we rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness and try to do what we can to, to make it up to people. Now, this is an interesting difference. We, we, cannot make, uh, we cannot make it up to God. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. We can't do anything to, 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 to correct or to pay back or to, or to fix the brokenness that exists between us and God because of our sin. For that, we need Jesus. But when we sin against each other, we at least we can start to try to make it right, and that's part of repentance when it comes to repenting of our sin to each other. But then there's a third kind of sin, and that is when we confess our sins against God to one another. And when we hear the idea of confession and absolution, that's what we're talking about. Now, this is not commanded by the Scriptures, but it's given to us in the Scriptures as a gift that we can not only confess our sins, but we can also hear of the Lord's mercy and promises from each other. Now, I remember the first time I saw this in action. I think I've told you guys uh, the story. I was visiting a Lutheran church as a young adult and had been in the, in the Lutheran church, at least not the liturgical Lutheran church, in a long time. And suddenly there was this guy in a dress standing up front saying these most audacious words, I forgive you your sins. And I, and I thought to myself, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. What's he doing up there forgiving sins? So I asked him after the service, I said, hey, what's this deal with this forgiveness business? And he did the very greatest thing in the world. He opened up Psalm, wait, wait, John 20. And he says, this is what this is about. So I'll pick it up in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
Here we are at Christmas time looking at an Easter tag. That's okay. It's good. Peace be with you. That's what Jesus always says. Peace be with you. Like the angels, don't be afraid. Peace. Pox. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. That's where we find our peace, by the way, in the, in the pierced hands and side of Jesus. And that's why he showed them the, his side, because that's what the soldiers had driven the spear through, and water and blood came forth. Disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, as if he hadn't said it already, because he can't say it enough, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Now this is an inc absolutely incredible, I mean it's almost, it's one of these things where, I mean, like all of the great truths of the Bible, you just wouldn't believe it unless you could see it written down. I mean that's what the Bible is. You never could believe any of the truths of the scriptures unless the Lord had written them down for us to see with our own eyes and hear with our own ears so that we believe it. And this is one of them, that Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on his disciples and he says to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Now I want to ask, just looking at the sentence, who is forgiving sins? Now we will always want to say, well, it's God who forgives sins, but what does Jesus say? Who does Jesus say is forgiving sins? Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. So that Jesus, with these words, gives to his church this incredible authority, what we call the authority of the keys or the power of the keys. See also Matthew 18 and also Matthew 16, where that language of keys is used to open and close the, the doors of heaven, to forgive sins and to bind sins, or what it says here, to withhold forgiveness, to, to bind people in their sins. That authority Jesus gives to his church. Now, that is an incredible, incredible authority. And the way it's most often exercised is through the practice of confession and absolution. Now, who can forgive sins? There's some controversy over this. I don't, I don't know why there shouldn't be, because the, the Lord has given to every Christian, every baptized Christian, this authority. But it's most often exercised by pastors who are put into the office to do so. But any Christian can say, in the name of Jesus, I forgive you all your sins. And here's the point. You're forgiving the sins not committed against you. You're forgiving the sins committed against God. You're forgiving those sins in the name of Jesus. That's what's being that's what's being sent away. So, so the practice of confession and absolution is going to a pastor or another trusted Christian, but a pastor is publicly sworn to give the absolution, and he's trained how to do it, and he's also made a public promise never to divulge the sins that are confessed to him. And you go to the pastor and you say, hey, hey, pastor, I know that Jesus died for me, and I know that all my sins are forgiven, but I got this sin, and it's stuck in my conscience. 
I got this in, and it's it's like the dog that you give some peanut butter to, and he just can't get the peanut butter off the roof of his mouth. You know, you've seen that? Sometimes we get sins stuck in the conscience, like peanut butter on the roof of a dog's mouth, and we gotta we got to pry that thing out of there. And confession and absolution is the tool given to do that prying. So we go to the pastor and we say, hey, what are you going to do with this sin? And the pastor does what Jesus does. He forgives it. That's incredible. Now, we have an order for that. I mean, one of the best things to do is to go to your pastor, if you're a Lutheran church, or you know, look, if you're not a, if you're not a Lutheran, but you've got a Lutheran church around you, which means you've got a Lutheran pastor around you, which means you've got a place where you can go and find a guy who knows how to forgive sins and say, hey, I've got this sin that's bothering me. What does Jesus say about it? He might bring you into the church. He might not. He might put his hands on top of you. He might put his stole on and cover your head with his stole. He might, uh, he might ask you a couple of questions. He might... He might not. He might say to you something like, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? If so, answer yes, and you'll say yes, and then he'll say, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. <laughs> and what do you do? What do you do when he says that? Josh asked a question. He says, how can we receive forgiveness? In other words, what do we do when that is spoken to us? And the answer is, you just cry for joy. You don't do anything but rejoice and delight in the Lord who has such mercy for sinners and such grace for us. Hmm. This is a big thing in the Reformation because most Protestant churches don't have confession and absolution. They said it was a Catholic relic and they threw it out. In fact, one of the big controversies during the Reformation was the indulgence controversy, right? Hey, can you buy and sell forgiveness of sins, etc., etc.? But the, but the Lutherans come along. There's a guy, Philip Melanchthon, and he says, we retain confession and absolution for the sake of the absolution. In fact, I had a pastor who said, look, because of that, because of what Melanchthon said there, I don't need to hear someone's confession. Somebody just come up to me and say, I want the absolution, and you can give it to them. Blammo. You can go to the pastor and say, hey, can I hear that promise? Can I, can I hear those words? Can you turn that key for me? And, and crack open the door, throw, break down the door that leads to the grace of God. And that's what's going on with confession and absolution. Thank you, uh, Josh, for that question, and and I hope it helps. Hey, I know we got to throw in one more break here, and then we'll pr uh, press through the end. So let's have one quick break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for joining me here on Cross Defense. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with you. Daily Chapel serves those who serve the Lord to be receivers of the Word and to remember where our true help is found. Hear God's Word read preached, confessed, and sung in the broadcast of Daily Chapel from the LCMS International Center in St. Louis weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. The broadcast of Chapel is underwritten by LCMS International Mission and Ministry to the Armed Forces. Right on. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolf. I told you that was going to be a short break. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolf, the other pastor of of St. Paul Lutheran and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Uh, let's, let's end. We got a, just a couple of minutes. Well, I guess we got about 10, 
eight minutes, six minutes? Let's end with this topic. I've been wanting to talk about this for a while, and that is spiritual warfare. And one specific thing about spiritual warfare. I want to, so in some ways this is a bit of a devotional thought. But I want to, I want to think through a little bit in uh, the, the promises or the texts, the wisdom that the Lord gives to us in Ephesians 6 and the promise of the armor of God. And, and especially this, I want to put it in context. One of the things that St. Paul does in his letters is he has these um, he has these sections which we call the table of duties. And those are places where Paul is going to sort of list the various different vocations that people have in this life, the various different callings that they have, um, the various different what jobs but it's vocation you know we hear vocation and we think job and that just doesn't do it it's more like your station in life so we have all of us are we start out the, uh, this life and we have the vocation of children we have parents we have at least a mom that's there giving birth to us and father had something to do with that and then when the lord gives us a gift of baptism we have a new vocation of ch of child of god of christian all of us have vocations as, as part of God's creation. We have vocations as redemption. As we grow up with the Lord in life, we become, maybe we become husbands or, or wives. We become parents and even grandparents. We get a job where, we, where we're working, and so we're either the boss or an employer or somewhere in between. We, we live in a country, so we're citizens. Some, some of you are elected or appointed to serve as rulers in different ways, and so we have all these different vocations and callings and Paul will go through them and 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 tell us how we're to act in each of these and and the reason is because love looks different based on your calling love takes all sorts of different shapes it's one of these things that is so helpful when reflecting on the scriptures just to recognize that love takes all these different shapes so the love of a husband for a wife is different than the love of children for their parents and so forth and so on the love of a boss for their worker is even different than the love of the worker for the boss and the love of the ruler and the ruled, the love of the pastor and the people, all these different callings in life set us in different places, and they give shape to our love. And so Paul will go through it, and he'll say, Husbands, for example, love your wives. There's no command, and here I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 5. There's no command anywhere in the Scriptures that wives ought to love their husbands. <laughs> so I don't know how many of you wives are out there now rejoicing that you're off the hook. I don't know if that's... Don't tell your husband that. But it's, it goes this way. The, the command is for husbands to love their wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit or be subject to, to your husbands as unto the Lord, as the church submits herself to Christ. It says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, see to it that you respect your husbands. And then children, honor your father and your mother. Parents, don't provoke your children to anger. And that's what's happening all through Ephesians chapter 5 until we get to chapter 6. It says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as, a, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. 
And then masters do the same thing. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with them, with him, excuse me. And then verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, this is, the, this is what I want to show you. Uh, show you on the radio. This is what I want to pour into your ears, is this understanding. Is that this idea of the armor of God, this famous passage in Ephesians 6, ought to be connected with the table of duties that comes before it. Now, what do I mean by that? The picture of the soldier that Paul puts before us in Ephesians chapter 6 is the picture of a sentry. Not a soldier who's in a cadre who goes marching out to fight, but rather as a, as a guard who is stationed. All throughout the ancient Roman Empire, there were guards stationed all along the border. And they were to stand there and to wait and to watch and to listen and to stand in their post, their appointed post, looking out for the enemy. Now, this is the picture of every Christian that's been stood in a particular post, in a, in a particular place, to watch, to listen for the advancing of the enemy, to see how it is that their particular region or place is under attack. But here, and this is the, the key thing that we want to get after, is what is your position? What is your place? Where has God put you to do this work of watching and standing and praying? And the answer is, it's your vocation. It's, it's your calling in life. Are you a husband? Then the Lord has placed you to do guard duty over your wife. Are you a wife? The Lord has placed you there to watch out for the devil's attacks on your husband. Are you a parent? Then the Lord has stationed you to listen and to watch for the devil's attacks on your children. Are you children? Then the, devil, then the Lord has set you to look out for the way that the devil attacks and assaults your home. Are you a pastor? The Lord has put you over a particular flock in a particular place. Are you a citizen? The Lord has placed you there in that place to listen and to watch and, and to pray. That, after all, is the chief way that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Paul is going to go through the whole list of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil, the shoes of the readiness to spread the gospel, and then the sword of the Spirit. And we don't want to miss this because Paul tells us not only what the sword of the Spirit is, but how the sword of the Spirit is used. He says in verse 17, Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the Lord has, the Lord has put you in a particular place, like a soldier on guard duty to watch and especially to listen 
You know the hardest watches were the watches through the night, through the darkness, when you're just trying to stay awake. You can't see until you're listening to hear the enemy advancing. This is how we are. We're listening to hear the enemy advancing. And then when we hear him, we take out the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, and we pray. We call in reinforcements, and the Lord sends them to protect and keep our families, our churches, our neighbors, our cities, our country, and so forth. So we are all placed, we are all stood up in a particular place, in a particular vocation, in a particular calling to engage in this warfare, to engage in this duty, to stand and watch. That's what the biblical idea of watchfulness is, is to be alert to the devil's attacks and the devil's assaults and not to go charging out on our own to fight him. You can't do it on your own. But to call in reinforcements through prayer. So I, I, I hope this is something of a rally cry that all of us remember where the Lord has placed us and we consider our vocations to be our spiritual appointments and that we take up the Bible as we study it and as, as we read it we take it up to pray. That husbands would pray for their wives and wives for their husbands and parents for their children and children for their parents and people for their pastor and pastors for their people and all of us for those who rule over us. That we would wield the sword of the Spirit with joy and with confidence and, and we would rejoice in this, that Jesus has already overcome the devil and that one day soon he'll, he'll crush him under our feet. Well, that's our hope. That's our confidence. And that is our joy. Jesus, the son of the virgin, is born to crush the head of the devil. And now he's crushing him, even under our feet. God be praised. And Merry Christmas. Hey, we'll talk to you soon. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for joining me here on Cross Defense. God's peace be with you. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.